Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the producer of the show. Today, I'm pleased to present an exchange with Warp Records co-founder and renowned record producer Robert Gordon. Gordon started Warp in 1989 in Sheffield alongside the Warp Record Store's employees Steve Beckett and Rob Mitchell. Warp is an imprint that I think needs little introduction to listeners who are acquainted with the UK techno scene, but it's most famously known for releasing artists like Aphex Twin and other big names who are now associated with Bleep Techno. It also released a lot of artists who were recording in a studio called Fawn, which is where Robert Gordon found his footing even before starting Warp. In this exchange, which is conducted by Tony Nwachukwu, a music producer, DJ, lecturer, and a resident advisor board member, Gordon talks about Fawn and laying the groundwork for the Sheffield scene. In 1985, he recalls, it was the first local commercial 24-track studio, and it attracted luminaries like David Bowie, Yaz, and groups tied to post-punk band Cabaret Voltaire. More recently, it's produced work by 808 State, Nightmares on Wax, and Sweet Exorcist. Gordon left Warp in 1991, but his a and for the label, along with his own productions and engineering assistance, defined the imprint's early sound. Yeah, I signed a lot of the Yorkshire acts that had uh, something similar to that. So you'd be like, um, you might have some kind of Jamaican heritage and you're putting a, a bit of bass onto your house techno. I thought that's what would fit on the label. So I ended up approaching and signing all that first wave of war, war packs, you know, like even Tricky Disco, I even took that one. He takes us back into Fawn's early days, reflecting on how it was foundational to the sound of the Naughties and how communities form around studios, which then become intrinsic to bigger musical movements. For audio nerds, he also gets pretty technical later on, mentioning his favorite studio gear for mixing and the benefits and drawbacks of recording with analog equipment. If you listen through, you'll also hear some fun and early warp tracks that Gordon worked on himself, and he shed some really fascinating insight into putting them together. So stay tuned, and without further ado, here is the one and only Robert Gordon. My name is Tony Wachiku. I'm a producer and educator based in London. I also run CDR. CDR is an organization that's very passionate about creating opportunities for music producers and the artists to come together to share what you're working on, compare reverb tales and EQ on your reverb or whatever, um, but ultimately a safe place to basically develop your music. And we're also very fortunate enough to have opportunities like this to speak to people who are part of our kind of music production lineage. And without, I just can't even say his name because I'm he's in front of me, Rob Gordon. And for the next 45 minutes or so, we'll, um, yeah, get into his practice, I guess, as a music producer, as an engineer, as someone who's been very much fundamental and foundational in terms of the kind of British bass-led music. So yeah, thank you very much, Rob, for being with us. So let's let's start at the beginning. Um, when did you know that working in the music industry, you know, w- with the skills that you had was something that you wanted to, you know, delve in and do full-time and it would be something that drives you from an income perspective? Well, it wasn't a decision. It was a thing where, because I knew how to do it, then I'm elected to do it. So it was simply like that from operating the record player in the big family. I'm elected to the one told to play the records in the parties and, you know, cause I could change a fuse and then I, I could uh, program the video recorder and, you know, it's the big Ferguson ones with the big, uh, yeah. I, I mean, it went as far as, um, the community center buying a porter studio. 
and them hunting me out because I would know how to operate it because I could operate anything if you've got the instructions on just reading it. So. <laughs> so I guess for a long time you were fixing it, Rob, then? Generally speaking, Bob can fix it, yeah. <laughs> you know, you've always had kind of a, a passion for electronics. Can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about that growing up? You know, how did you kind of express yourself through resistors and capacitors? What did that look like? Well, apart from like changing the fuels or whatever, I think the big thing for me was um, when you're a kid, you might see how to... That magazine where you build a battleship, you buy Series 1, and then you da 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 Well, I had that with Hobby Electronics. I managed to get Series 1, 2, and 3 all at the same time. And then I just started building all the music-based projects and got them mostly working on I just thought, well, this is Dr. Walter, really. And do you remember the first electronic thing that you were most proud of? Do you remember what it was? Yeah, well, the one that I was really proud of was the doorbell where I'd built... Uh, analog sequencer and uh, oscillator and when you push my, the door my mum's doorbell <laughs> you got this random sequence of notes from the resistor ladder that I'd done to do the different pictures and it was just to prove to myself I can build an analog sequencer and I can build an oscillator I think you were onto something there you know analog sequencer ring bell you know some you didn't think about taking it stage further and maybe well, well that, yeah I was at school I couldn't afford to take it further it was just a thing where when I've got some money, I've, I've got this circuit, it's there to prove, do you know what I mean? And then I could expand on it when I could afford the big panel and all the controls or anything. So did you take your passion for electronics further, as in, you know, did you go to, you know, college or, you know, go to university to, le to learn the same field skills? No, no, I, I considered it. And then I was, I found out that anything I invented would belong to the university. And I thought it might be my best up. So I just skipped that one. So what did you do instead? Operated the port studio, and then a group in Sheffield got a, a, a major deal. I think it was uh, quite famous at the time for the amount of money it was. And they bought a brand new 24-track studio, and then they somehow came across one of my Porter studio demos and reckoned it sounded better than their studio. So then I got a job interview. So from your Porter studio antics, you then got to, I guess, work at the studio, right? Fond studio. Yeah, it was a cassette 4-track straight to 24-track 2-inch. So I guess a lot of what you're saying is that a lot of your opportunities you've kind of fallen into, you know, via your skills as someone in the world of electronics, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even when I started the studio, I'd done a lot of formal music training, so I could sight read drums or I could compose on manuscript paper or whatever. Equipment at the time was manuscript only to get the sims to play. So I could operate it, but if you didn't know <laughs> how to operate a sim, and write sheet music. You couldn't do it, but I could. The skill set again. So again, you were very unique and in the right place at the right time. That's it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the you know the early days of Fon. You know, Fon is definitely foundational to the obviously the sound of the North, obviously Sheffield. But in retrospect, I think it's it's a reminder how important a studio is and how communities built around the studio in terms of the artists that pass through, the talent that are support artists coming through. Um, and what's unique about you is that, you know, you've got this really good balance of having this really grounded technical capability, but also you have this background in music, right? And you're able to kind of flex both of those skills in different ways, being at Fon. So talk us through what it was like, you know, getting this job at Fon to then starting to work on projects. How did that, how did that manifest itself? Because from what you're saying, it's not as if you studied being a recording engineer or a producer. It's almost like, it feels like you fell into that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started as um, 
a, a second level engineer. My first project at Fon was with, um, I think his name was Frank Rosa from um, America and the producer uh, Richard Burgess from New Zealand or Australia. So it was like, you know, proper big time 48 track recording session with two 24 track machines and a synchronized. It was just like the highest level. And that was one of my first ones. And uh, But my first one should have been with Sly and Robbie, but they'd left a week before I went for the interview. That must have frustrated you. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, oh, Sly and Robbie was here last week. Can you talk us through what it was like and the relationship between, say, you, other engineers, you know, the kind of studio culture and community? Talk us through what that was like. Okay, well, on Studios was a typically good studio for the time. So that means you'd have a 24-channel tape machine, a desk that can take that, and hopefully double 15-inch monitors, and a live room and a few... When, when I started, MIDI was brand new. The first MIDI computer was a Yamaha CX-5, manuscript entry only. You couldn't play a keyboard and make it record it. You had to, and there wasn't even a mouse. And so it's a thing where you'd be at home, you've got whatever, I think it'd be a 707 would be around then. I think the drum machine we had was a sequential circuits, which might have been the first MIDI drum machine. Were these all clocked via, did you did you sort the MIDI out? Or the we, yeah, we, we were using MIDI, MIDI from this um, Yamaha computer. So that was the latest thing at the time. And so, because we had that equipment there, it was tempting to use it, I suppose. <laughs> and of course you were the technical one, so you got to set it all up, right? Yeah, well, I got there and it was already working, but I could operate anything that was there. I think there was a, a green gate sampler, which I didn't bother with on an Apple computer. So I, admit, I didn't learn that. I just just got a knack I instead. <laughs> Fon must have been a, a huge focal point in Sheffield at the time, right? For a lot of producers, having access to a studio that had great people like yourselves working there was accessible. You know, it must have been a huge thing. For yeah, well, it wasn't that accessible. It was a private studio. It wasn't really a studio. It was a studio built to make an album because the, the band reckoned that they, with the budget that they projected to spend in London, that they could build a studio in Sheffield with that budget. So that's, that's like the, that's the advantage that they got. They, yeah, yeah, sure. The album didn't do well and they were, and they were going to close the studio. And um, I, it was my suggestion to run it commercial because they've got a record label, Fon Records, and you've got the studio. So why would you close it down? You can record these other bands, which I didn't know about at the time. But, you know, being in Sheffield, you'd, you'd see posters on the wall for indie bands. I went into India. And they says, what do you mean? And I says, well, these bands like Pulp, Treebound Story, Artery, you know, I see them on the posters. And I and, and John Peel sometimes plays them, so why don't we just record them and put them out on the label? And they agreed and kept it open, and then, you know. And the rest is history. Yeah, I think my first record is um, features Richard Hawley, for example. And that's the first time I got to be in charge of making a record. So with that, you know, being in charge of making a record, just for some context, if you've got obviously a technical background, but suddenly you're having to, you know, learn how to mix using a 24-track desk and all this hardware, how, how did you how did you learn to use that equipment? How did you learn from being someone who's quite technical to being someone who was essentially, you know, an engineer, then obviously into, into production? After the job interview, they said, um, some of the equipment might be a bit technical for me because I'm 17 or whatever, so... I said, like, what, for example? And, and, and then I convinced them to let me go in the studio for 20 minutes or something, and I'll let them know if there's something beyond me. And I told them there's nothing beyond me, and I can work tomorrow. It's just, 
you know, if you do electronics, it says it, what it does on it. <laughs> it's quite easy. It says it. So what kind of equipment was in the studio at the time? We're talking early 80s, right? Yeah, we had yeah. JBL double 15s. Yep. AMS Angela desk. Um, Soundcraft tape machine, not so good. Revox mastering. Sony. Before the Sony DAT machines, it was a Sony Betamax video recorder with a... F1, the F1 yeah, thing, yeah. oh, the 701, it was the F1, and then it was the Sony that. And then the samplers, we started out with um, an Akai, where, where it took a mini disc, and you had to load six discs. Yeah, for so the oh. S15900 or the 1000 that was? It was, it was b before the 1000, before the 1000, there was an Akai. And so, which one, the, the very first one? I think it was the 7000. Not the very first one, the second generation of the first one. So you could get it as a keyboard, and, okay. and we had it as a keyboard, mm -hmm. and we... In fact, I made a separate outbox for it because there was a socket on the back for connecting to a SIM. Of course. And I realized that it had the six outputs. Of course you did. Box. So we got this six outs of this. There's <laughs> a box with some wires. That's all it was doing, our components. I hear that. <laughs> it's a unique skill. It's a very unique skill. I'm going to play something from that era. I'm going to play it and you can just tell us something about it. Okay. Yeah. What I'd like to say about that record to start with is the B side of that record, Jack's Back, is the first bleep record. It just is because you can play it and it's, it's bleeps all over the place. That was Mark Gamble and Marshall's idea. So can somebody repair the Wikipedia entry saying it was DJ Parrot? We'll get that sorted. Thank you. So talk to us about this tune. It was, it was one of, obviously one of the you know early records from the whole fun time, beginnings of you know you working with Mark. It was the first time that I got to work on what I considered black music when I had that job. I'd been working there years, doing all kinds of rock and indie and da 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 da. And then I got offered that 
and I jumped on it because I wanted to make something in the studio that I could play my friends and say, oh, listen to what I've done. So as an engineer, this was a, this was a, this is like, I guess a session that came in to actually get the record finished, right? Well, yeah. well, it came into the record company and I ended up being producer. So I think this is my second or third record as a producer. So given the fact that it was a track that you had a more of an affinity with in terms yeah. of the style, what gave it the kind of Rob stamp? What is Rob on this record? To start with, it's a clear sound. I always liked a hi-fi sound, never mind the type of music I like it where it sounds really good on good equipment. You, you know, some records only sound good in the club and some only sound good on the radio. And I like mine to sound good anywhere. So I always concentrate on the sound, especially then the bass sound, because a lot of records were tinny about then. Bass definitely cuts through in that record. I like the drums perfectly in time. I like the music. Well, as a job as a producer, I think your main job is to have the diction correct, the tuning correct, and the timing. I mean, it, it can't be faulty. So I don't, I don't like faults on the record. Were you involved in the programming of the record, you know, bringing together the samples, the actual compositional aspects? No, no it was mainly Mark Gamble, mm -hmm. but I'd help him program. Okay. You know, sometimes I'd, I'd help him program a synth sound or whatever. I mean, I guess this record, you know, ironically did really well, right? Yeah. You know, were you surprised that it was as successful as it was? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. It should have been bigger because I seem to remember there was more than one chart at the time. The BBC had their charts and there was all these other charts. And on all the other charts, it was number one. But on the BBC, it was number two. Robson and Jerome was number one. Of course. So we could never, never on the BBC ever. <laughs> but how does it feel to have, a, you know, a record that you worked on and be re very much part of and see your record become successful, particularly at that time when you were transitioning into being a producer? It's the usual thing. Um, it all turns bitter when you don't really see the money. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. Okay. So I guess you, I'm assuming that you're paid as, say, a, as a producer, but in terms of royalties, you weren't really part of that line in the budget. I, I did force some money out of them where I did a calculation on the back of a cigarette packet and said, you owe me at least this much and I got a check for that and that was it. So a lot of the time when you work in a studio, the, if a session comes in, mm. you know, you obviously work for hire and it obviously depending on what your involvement is, you know, you're either work for hire or you're something substantially more. So I guess, you know, became clear that you're obviously substantially more, right? But maybe they, they didn't think of it that way. It is what it is because when you've got the major labels in London sending tapes and money up to Sheffield asking me to remix, you know, it, it, whatever problems there is, it's not mine. It's something getting projected around somewhere. So let's play one more because um, at this time you kind of were on fire. Did you get any sleep at all? You know something, it was a bit bad. You know, it, it, it was actually quite a bit bad. Yeah, I, I, like, I, I was getting stomach ulcers and you name it. It was, I was physically suffering. So I guess you were just really passionate about the music and really passionate about being in the studio environment, right? Yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just... But what was driving you? Was it, was, was it your dedication to the music that was driving you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I, 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 can, I can hear music before it's, I can hear music in my head. I can compose in my, in my mind. And, um, yeah, I thought it, I thought, well, I, I found out that people wanted to hear what I could make up. So it's just a case of having an opportunity to make up a piece of music and get it released at any opportunity. And it was fantastic because again, you know, just looking at your output at the time and obviously beyond that, but definitely in that time, that kind of window of time in the kind of late 
80s, obviously it was like, you know, what was happening culturally was very significant in the UK in terms of the emergence of dance music becoming really Summer of Love and all that stuff. But, you know, I think for me, again, back then looking at Sheffield and looking at the whole fun environment, it just felt that you were this kind of work workhouse, you know, working on some amazing records and working on some amazing mixes at the time, you know, and the fact that, yes, you're just literally must have, fun must have been open 24 hours. Yeah, twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. So, I mean, some some sessions, I'd, I'd wake up on the sofa at nine in the morning, you know, and, and then go home. <laughs> I'll play another one, another couple from that era. So this is a remix that you did for the Associates, um, track entitled Half of Heart of Blondes. Yes, that's right, the Blondie cover. How did that come about? Was this a similar kind of request from London? Yeah, yeah, just yeah. straight, you know, on the telephone to the management office, uh, the blah, blah, blah. They asked me, am I interested? How much is it? Send up the tape, do it, send it back, get me money. <laughs> simples. Yeah, it's simples, yeah. Do you recall how you kind of approached working on this remix? It's, it's simple. It's like... Um, I like music and if I can make this into something I want to dance to personally, I think it's that good. It makes me want to dance myself and I think that's about it. I mean, everything's there. It's my fault. Everything. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's what they want. I'm employed to do it. I've got to make something what makes people dance. And if I can't feel it, I wouldn't expect anyone else. And were you absorbed by, you know, what were, where were your influences coming from at the time in terms of the kind of, you know, Oh, uh, well, uh, house is a funny thing for me, house music. Um, a few of my school friends tried introducing me to Trax Records. I can't remember, I'm a dog and all this other stuff, Willy Wonka and whatever else, and I thought it would be terrible. Was that compositionally or, 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 or production-wise? Both. It's like, oh, gosh. You know, it, it, was, it was nowhere near as... Some bangers, though. Oh, Virgo, Virgo, you can't mess with Virgo. Eventually, eventually, but I'm talking the early stuff. You know, it, it, I mean, I, I, I said, I think I know why they call it house music. Sounds like it's made in somebody's house. I heard it. This, uh, so you wanted to do something about that? Yeah. Yeah. My house records, you can play them on a, 
expensive hi-fi, whereas you would play that tracks on a Lin Sun deck, yeah? <laughs> it'll sound. It'll sound. Take it away. It'll sound. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes and no. I mean, let me think of one. Uh, some of the tracks, I'm just trying to think of one I, I really like. I do like some of them. Like, obviously, this dub love. But um, something I want to talk about later, the difference between analog and digital. Because some of that track stuff was that cheap, it ended up being 100% analog. Yeah, in terms of the signal path, right? In terms yeah. of the signal. Yeah. And then we, then we had to record it onto yeah. a cassette or a reel-to-reel because we can't afford a digital recorder. And then it'd be cut in a, a studio without the vinyl cut would be cut without Group because the system hasn't got a digital delay to do the spaces between the group. So accidentally, like a lot of Jamaicans, accidentally end up 100% analog. And when that happens, you play it on a massive system and it sounds better than all the modern records. <laughs> Because of the analog, yeah. the pure analog chain. Yeah, just to cycle back a little bit. So your house music, um, Rob's housing was kind of in response to the, the quality, wasn't Rob's quality yeah. out there. So yeah. Rob's doing something about it. Yeah. So again, Rob's going in the lab and basically fixing. Yeah. If, they, if And I think this is what you want. So try it like this. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So what kind of things did you do in the studio to kind of get that kind of high quality sound? Was it about, um, obviously your progress in terms of mixing, but were there particular bits of equipment or cue that you're using? It was a choice of equipment. There was plenty of equipment there. At that time, my favorite sampler, at the time of that record, my favorite sampler was a Casio. FZ series. Yeah. yeah. And next, sat next to it is an Akai, but I prefer the Casio. You know, so it's about listening and being attentive. It's not how much it costs. They always use a, a Juno 106, but I've been known to use that 106 for a hi-hat <laughs> You know, but that was my go-to synth, is it? Do you know what I'm saying? Whether you're remixing, producing, is there a kind of balance between Rob the technician and Rob the actual, you know, producer artist? I mean, and engineering for me is a lot easier because I wouldn't try to use a rubbish sound in the first place. I'd choose a good sound. Whereas remixing, you've got to do a lot of repair. So how did you differentiate between what was you as a remixer in your own right and what you did with as Force? How did you navigate that? It's one of those things where it falls into place. Um, I don't know if you know, I did um, half an album for Yaz. I got some money and then I bought a, a batch of equipment for myself at home all at the same time. So, you know, like an order for a few thousand pounds back then. So it all arrived at once. And so I've got like this Roland analog synth, a DAP machine, the F, F Casio sampler. I had to go and buy a, a little eight channel mixer for a hundred pounds. Oh, and an M1 keyboard. And then a, fr a friend of mine popped in and said, oh, what's all this on the living room floor? And I explained. And I says, oh, you like house music. I was just going to put together a little record track, but being as you're here, I'll put together a house music tried to show you what he does because he wasn't a musician, this guy, but he was a clubber. I wasn't a clubber and I never went to clubs. So I put him together this little house thing and gave him a cassette of it. And that cassette ended up being the B side of Track With No Name. That was it. It never changed. What happened was he took the cassette to the nightclub and Winston thought it was that good that he popped round with Sean and I did another one for him, which is the A side. That is Track With No Name. I was just, just to please my friends. Just, you know. Oh, you'll like this. You'll like this. Yeah. So again, it was that kind of happy accident. Yeah. Right. So and, and let's that, have a listen to that happy accident just for you. Yeah, yeah.
So the the sound on that sounded different to the other tracks you've played so far. Why is that then? Because the the mixer, the mixer I used. Can you remember what the mixer you used? That's the one they you had at home, right? Yeah, it, yeah. A hundred pounds brand new. What was that hundred? What by any chance? What was it? So front line, just maybe just. <laughs> oh, the 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 black one with the blue the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what that was made of. And uh, okay. M M one doing the. Those um, sounds with reverbs. Yeah, the drums with the F said, and the bass. With yeah, with nine and nine samples, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. And the, and the bass was um, the Roland synth. So it just happened to be some equipment that was lying. Yeah, all done on the living room. And they happens to, and it happens to come out warped. Well, they had to drag me to the club as a surprise. And I, but weren't you even curious? I mean, you know, being a sound man, you, you know, they being told me, they were just like, look, Robert, you've got to come to the club about a month later. You've got to come to the club. And I'm like, you're not. And the force man, I'm there all night. <laughs> and then, yeah. was that uh, because you didn't like the mix or? No, 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 no. The music that they were playing, they were playing, you know, that, 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 <laughs> that kind of quality that, house that music. That kind of house I didn't like. <laughs> And, and, and my my cassette it was a cassette, was the biggest track of the night, and I looked around and I thought, I've been working for Warner's, EMI, and all these other companies, and they spent thousands to get this reaction. They'd bribe DJs and also all to do anything to get what I've got off this cassette. But listening to it, I couldn't present that to any record company at the time because they just laughed me out the door. So where's Why is that? Where's the song? It's a different time. Where's the song? <laughs> You know, who, who is the actor then? And you, know, it's, you have to fit in the sort of thing. And that was just basically street messing about street music. So I pressed it up myself because I knew nobody else would do it. So I just I had the money and I just pressed up 500 copies and sold them within a week. And then I thought, you know something, we better put, put a label on this if I'm going to press up some more. So that's how the company kind of started. So you went from, you know, being dragged to, I mean, okay, let's just take a step back. So. You're not too disgruntled that you got dragged to the club, are you? I mean, you know, no. It was. It had its benefits. Right? Yeah, it, it, it Yeah, I see why they did it. <laughs> Good. Let's get me clear about that, yeah. right? Because you know, without that, who knows? Maybe the record would not come out, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it may have yeah, influenced your yeah, decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do well, you know I mean? 
Well, I remember Parrot, DJ Parrot said to me once, but no, I said to him, I think we was out somewhere. Graham Park might be in DJing at the level. I approached Pat and I says, I don't, you know, I don't like house. But what's this? This isn't house. What's playing now? And he says, oh, that's nude photo by Derek May. And I says, well, as you know, I don't like house, but I like that. What is that? Is that? He goes, no, that's techno. And I says, well, I like techno. I don't like house. I guess I'm guessing here that techno feels a little bit more. There's some skill in it. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah the nuancing of the sound. So yeah, you know, just yeah. all over this skill. It's not just a drum machine and just boom, 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 and really bad sound. It's, you know, there's somebody that knows what they're doing in a studio, making a record for a change. Whereas house, it's like a DJ kind of music, whereas techno is more like a, a professional kind of look. You know, deciding to release the record and pressing it yourself and then obviously starting a label from that. Talk. Tell us how that manifests itself from there. Because again, this record was well received, right? When it, came out. It, it didn't get well received at, this, at Fond Studios. They were really upset that I didn't record it then. Yeah, I signed a lot of the Yorkshire acts that had uh, something similar to that. So you'd be like, um, you might have some kind of Jamaican heritage and you're putting a, a bit of bass onto your house techno. I thought that's what would fit on the label. So I ended up approaching and signing all that first wave of war, war packs, you know, like even Tricky Disco, I even took that one, you know. I, I suppose my time stopped with um, Tough Little Unit. That's the, that's after Tough Little Unit, I'm not involved anymore. Why is that then? I, I got asked to leave. Okay, let's just cycle back. So record one comes out, you know, has some kind of critical, you know, um, acclaim sets the label on the map and you know, Dexterous comes out if you have a label records come out you're involved in those in some capacity right yeah um and then what happened for you to go from being the person who set it up and it was instrumental in you know record one two three four it's just it's just gen general user usurping i think they call it so you know you get offered a deal and then you want to keep all the money to yourself so you just bump one off the side so this deal came from a ladder I didn't know about it at the time, but the guys got offered a, a deal with Virgin Records and got rid of me as quick so that they could keep the money to themselves. That's not very nice. No, it isn't. Nice. Put me off music for a while. I can believe it. I can believe it. Particularly for someone like yourselves who's been so dedicated, you know, spent the last two or three years with no sleep, sleep stomach, culture. Oh, like, oh, and then when I read it, when I read in the press that it, it was, um, it was my decision and all this sort of thing, you know, like I, I, I I walked, you know. So you didn't feel the need to work with the press to tell your side of the story at the time, no? Or was it just too painful at the time? Because it's a, it's a lot of pain, and then with the little money I've got left, I can't just keep, keep throwing it around in legal services. Plus, I didn't want to damage the scene, you know. I mean, I've got a dispute with Unit 3, and I told them straight, I said, the only reason I didn't take you to court then is because I didn't want to damage this could seem we, what we had, you know, put scandal all over it. Is a lot of this about you obviously putting a lot of work into these projects, a lot of creative work yeah, and not getting recognized for it in terms of, you know, songwriting splits or. No, 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 no. Okay. Just the payment, just the payment. As in straight up with just, my feet. Just straight, straight, you know, so my, <laughs> there's my name on the label. Why haven't I got no money? Do you know what I mean? It's just like 
you know, how's your legal services, Mr. Gordon? And if you're on universal credit or whatever, it's not happening, is it? Excuse my ignorance, but at Fond Studios, you were a staff member, right? No? Yeah, I was a or staff. Free, I was freelance. I, I, I was a member of staff, and then I ended up being a prominent shareholder, okay. should I say. Where's the disconnect between, you know, you being very prominent in the organization and very prominent, particularly in the early days of uh, well, the record labels? It's, 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 it's the same thing again. When the studio decided to do, I think what did they call it, uh, a reconfiguration or something like that, and then they're going to close down the studio for 24 hours, and open it up under a new name, and Robert's bumped off the side again. So all my investment just stolen. Again, not very nice. Yeah, I nearly lost my house because that was the guarantee. Sure. And so they took my shares and left me with my house in their business without, <laughs> it was just, just terrible. I guess back then it was obviously very painful. I was young. Well. Yeah, exactly. You know, and arguably, at, you know, at the high point of your career, well, you know, yeah, yeah. definitely in a really sad well, I did, I, point, I, right? I, I didn't, I was that young, I didn't understand. I, I thought competition is when you try and do better than somebody else. I didn't realize that everybody didn't look at it like that. And now I've learned that competition means getting rid of your competitor. And I wasn't brought up that way, so I didn't see it coming. Yeah, what happened after that? You know, from someone being really prolific and working on, make some amazing records for a, a really I, I, short but intense period of time. And then, you know, having I, this transition to... I, had to get, I got a job in across town in, in, a, in another studio. Meanwhile, my studio's there. I'm having to work for five pounds an hour at another studio across town. Couldn't afford to put out another record. Everybody's stolen all my money. It's horrible when people approach me and say that I more or less let down their life because I stopped making records. I always get approached like I decided to stop making records. I've seen it in the press myself. But then a lot of that's about who's telling the story, right? Oh, of, course, know, of, of course, you know, of course, of course, of and, course. And you know this. I mean, look, you're still here now. You're still making mm -hmm. records. You're still involved in, in music. You know, I think that in time, you'll be able to share your perspective on things that happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember one story where I think maybe some people here might know this lady, Sarah Gregory. She used to be married to Glenn Gregory from Heaven 17. She lives in London. And she used to do a, th a thing where she'd um, look after us black not just black black but the stranded techno musicians in london so you could stay at her flat for a few hours meanwhile you're waiting for the train or whatever or you know even get a layover uh, yeah and she'd always do this you know i think she does the artwork for transmat records in in america and so um I, i've seen her about two or three times she always used to go on about her friend karen and how she does her friend karen's hair and that, i just thought well you know, she's, she said, oh, no, but Karen's black. And I'm like, I'm from Sheffield, I don't know, you know. And then it came out that it was Karen Wheeler she was talking about from Soul to Soul. So I'm like, oh, now I understand why I might know her, but I don't, right? And then she says, oh, you're from, but you're from Sheffield. She says, yeah. And she says, well, Karen keeps on telling me that she got the wrong producers when she went to get her album recorded in Sheffield. I says, well, she says, yeah, she ended up in court for sampling twice of that album. And I says, basically, the album called UK, UK Black, yeah? So she came to Sheffield to record an album called UK Black, and she finds Mark Bryden to do it, not me. That's the management quality, what, what was happening to me. It happened a few times where they come for me, 
I'm Mark Bride and got the job. I'm sorry to get that personal, but basically my job's got given away to other people as if I wasn't there, you know, and it, it caused problems for these other artists with the sampling, you know. I think there was a problem with acid jazz as well with the sampling. There's jobs sent for me that I could have done without sampling. And I mean, it's, it's always very tough when you're working um, partnership with people and egos, money, you know, all these things kind of start to play, particularly when popularity, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, you know. conspiracies between your manager and his um, university mate. So all my jobs get given to by my manager to his university mate who can't do the job to the standard. You know, it's bound to fail. And it's very frustrating, isn't it? Particularly when you're in the midst of it. I mean, how did you, apart from obviously moving studio and set up a new environment for yourself, how did you cope mentally? Oh, no, I didn't set up a studio. No, I said you moved to another... Oh, yeah, yeah, work, I, another studio. yeah I started working as staff engineer. Yeah. Not not producer, just staff engineer, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, 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 a studio plus talent. So how how was that kind of mentally? Because you know, particularly you're, you're no, you know, the tape machine was terrible. Was it a, was it a soundcraft? Soundcraft, they were terrible. It was it was a bad condition. It was terrible. Apart from the tape machine, I was all right though. And you didn't feel compelled to fix the tape machine though. I had a look at it a couple of times, but nah. Cool. Let me see if these guys have got some questions that you want to ask you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. So my question really is like reggae, you know, music and just that's it. But your productions, reggae, where, where does that sit? Oh, nice. Well, it's a, it's a funny thing, this. It's a case of um, if I'm in a car on the motorway and somebody's put the radio on and I'm forced to listen to the radio or something, I'd like to hear something that I like in that song, whether it's uh, the sound of the bass or whether it's just a little echo there or, you know, Things I like about reggae, I like those things in other types of music. So that's how it kind of fits together for me. In fact, it's a thing where one of my proudest moments was when I heard the Unique Free record, the theme, on a reggae sound system in Sheffield. And they had no idea that I had anything to do with it. They just played it because they just... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that question. Hello. Uh, where does the name Ultraviolet Neon Planet come from? You said it in an interview uh, in, oh. in the Join the Future book. Oh, um, yes, yes. It, it, it was, I just made it up. I mean, if I was to shut my eyes and listen to some of that music from then, that's how I'd kind of describe what he's trying to do. And, and not just my music, but a lot of the music from that period seemed like they were facing the same direction musically, which is that ultraviolet, whatever I said. <laughs> Yeah, another phrase I like is um, what what I used to use back then is organic techno, which meant that um, every waveform is different. So you have to use analog equipment so that there's nothing repeated in terms of waveform. Everything's micro changing. It's the thing where if you get an analog drum machine, you can put it on one pattern and press play, and it might be interesting for five minutes or so. And you, you could sample those sounds, program the same beat, press play, and it might be interesting for about half a minute. Because the samples, nothing's changing. There's no organic flow of anything. Whereas the analog machines, they warm up and they cool down and they sound different when, they, you know, there's always something happening. So fluidity there. Yeah, yeah. even if it's subconscious, it's not as boring to listen to an analog um, repeating itself than a digital. 
Thank you for your question. Is there one more? Or is that... I'm just wondering uh, about your process when you're working on records today. You've mastered a couple of, well, a couple of records from Groundwork, so uh, stuff that I've produced and essentially what you did for me anyway is transformed the sound from what I was making into my bedroom into a, an actual actual record and it totally blew my mind back then and listening back to them now it still does so I was just wondering what your approach is these days for Astro and whether you stick to the analog or yeah, it, in various it, it's, it's, easy, it's an easy answer really it's, it's about the monitoring system in this game it, it's not good to get a monitoring system that you switch it on and wow everything sounds brilliant you want a monitoring system that you switch it on and you go ooh I didn't realise you were that rubbish that's how you need your monitors I like NS10s, Yamaha NS10s for that. I tried them on my hi-fi and they sounded that terrible that I know they're good for me. <laughs> Yamaha NS1000s, they're good. They, they will tell you when it's rubbish. Um, Genelex, they're poor. I know they're very popular, but Gen Genelex, is, they're a party speaker for me. You turn it up and it's like, hey, this sounds really good. No good. You need to hear the, the truth and then you can do the work. So if you've got a mix that sounds really good on... Yamaha NS10s, many of you all know, it sounds good on everything else. So you've got to have your, your monitoring approach like that, you know, really dry, unflattering monitoring, and then you can do your work to make it sound good, and then it'll sound good on everybody else's speakers. On the subject of, you know, where you're at now, what keeps you busy, you know, nowadays? And tell us a little bit about your thoughts around this kind of analog or digital. Digital mixing in the box, technically, doesn't really work and uh, i'll explain it i'll explain it a few times a few ways actually when digital mixing in the box first started it reflected in the charts where the music could have two or three instruments so it would just be a piano a voice and you know there was a lot of empty ballad type music and that suits digital audio because once you bring in everything else you can't hear everything but when you solo it it sounds great and then when you put all the other 30 channels back in, you can't hear what you just solo. There's a reason for that. It's called um, the mix bus. And the mix bus is bit depth of what it can handle in terms of how many bits it can mix together. And the trouble is, most mix buses are 32 bits, which means that you can't even mix two 24-bit waves without it disappearing. It's just um, shifting the chairs around the... Kind of thing, you know what I mean? The more you put in, the less you get out. How can a producer today make the most of what's available today, okay. given that there is this renaissance in hardware? There's obviously some really high quality digital emulations of analog hardware. Well, well, well is it, it, and it's, it's the same answer. You, if you're mixing in the box, you have to compose your music to be able to mix in the box. So you have as little tracks as possible because the mix bus can't handle it and once you're aware that the mix bus can't handle it you'll just have a simple bass sound a simple drum thing and a simple thing that comes in but once you start trying to put that string thing on it all the drums start disappearing and the bass don't sound it. <laughs> it's a funny one <laughs> you'll have seen it before interesting interesting <laughs> on an analog system mm -hmm. you can solo the bass drum and go right that's the bass drum and when you put everything else back in the bass drum's still there the same yeah. volume yeah, with the same sound. That's untrue in the box. Yeah, I guess that's about analog pathways, right? And and capacitors and resistors, right? You know, and trans, you know, and transistors, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to noughts and ones, essentially. Mm -hmm. 
But do you think there'll ever be a time when you're happy with digital? Yeah, I've, I've built a lot of my own digital converters to try and get around the thing. And like I'm saying, I built that Valve master word clock. So I can actually work in the digital domain in a happy way. I've even rebuilt my sound card up amps and all of that. So I, I can get what I consider a good sound, but I still don't think it's got the charm of an analog, really. So you're a creature of all habit. You know, there's a problem in, in rub fixes. You know, I couldn't afford to buy what I wanted. <laughs> I don't even know if they made it, actually. So apart from building hardware devices, you know, what else keeps you busy nowadays? I'm setting up um, a new personal studio. In Sheffield, all the producers have got their own personal manshed studio space. So I'm doing one for myself with an analog desk, with loads of digital channels coming into this analog summing desk. And um, I'm really big, 15-inch, double 15-inch speakers. I'm getting back to that. I swear like. for your neighbours. Oh, no, it's in, a, it's, a, it's in town. <laughs> it's in town. And is, is this for your music-making adventures, or is it about you setting up as a producer, as an engineer for other people? What are you thinking? Well, I haven't really decided. I think it might be more a showroom for what I'm building. That'd be a good idea. You have a demonstration room, you know? Yeah, and you've still got some kit from back in the day, right? Tons of it. I think a showroom with said hardware would be very well received, wouldn't you think? Just sowing a seed, helping you <laughs> manifest this idea. Maybe not open to the general public. My appointment only. <laughs> there you go. By appointment only. I'm sure a lot of people will be on that waiting list. Uh, Rob, thank you very much for your time. And yeah. thank you. Thank you for listening to this Aria Exchange with Robert Gordon. The track you heard in this episode is his strange remix of the song Easy Life by Cabaret Voltaire, which he also produced and released on vinyl in 2001. Thanks so much to Yuande and the CDR crew in London for helping coordinate this, and to Tony, of course, for hosting. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. If you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or stories you'd like to share, please send us an email at exchange at ra.co. Until next time, take care.